Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November 29th, 2016. This is episode 1906 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I am going to talk today about cooking deer meat. I had a question I almost put on the show yesterday for the listener feedback show on cooking deer meat. But it gave me this laundry list of cuts, and I thought, you know what? That would make a good standalone show. And here's the good news. Let's say you're like, Jack, I don't eat deer meat. Or, Jack, I would love to eat deer meat, but I don't have access to it. I don't hunt. I don't get to go hunting this year. I don't have any whatever. Everything I'm going to tell you today applies to beef and lamb. And a lot of the stuff that you might really think, man, I'd really like to try deer done that way. Try with lamb. Lamb is... And I say lamb and goat are, are pretty good analogs to venison. And lamb more than goat, but goat as well, especially the bigger breeds, uh, especially if harvested young enough where they're still tender because they get tougher than an older deer does. Anyway, so we're going to be talking about that today. I'm going to talk about cooking steaks, stews, ground meat, sausages, chops, roast, back straps, tenderloin, even some heart and liver stuff, and uh, some really focusing on cooking techniques. Yeah, I'll I'll probably make you hungry, but at least I won't make you crave junk food and desserts today. I'll uh I'll talk to you about cooking red meat, which is as paleo as it gets. Before we do that though, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about a hundred trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. And today's uh, TSP Business Directory supporter is Peak Poultry, a small-scale breeder of black australops. Rhode Island Reds and Well Summers, they have selectively breed for the best traits to deal with local environment in North Carolina, but also ship seasonally. Check them out at the TSP Business Directory located at tspbiz.com where you can do business with Peak Poultry and a bunch of other members of the TSP community that run their own small businesses and want to do business with you. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1906 because the episode is 1906. And Alex Shrugged has two for us today. We have the big one, the Frisco Quake, and we have Welcome to the Jungle, Muckracking Finds Its Voice. We also have notable births from this year. Leonid Brezhnev, born in the Ukraine, he will lead the Soviet Union after Khrushchev. Adolf Eichmann, Nazi mass murderer, who said, quote, I will leap into my grave laughing because the feeling that I have five million, five million human beings on my conscience is for me a source of extraordinary satisfaction, end quote. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran pastor executed for his part in Operation Valkyrie and the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. In other news, a United Kingdom scientist proves the Earth has a molten core. 
This contradicts the popular belief that Earth is hollow with an entrance at the North Pole. It's interesting that I talked about how sophisticated people were in some ways at this time yesterday, and today, not so much. Uh, the Azuha Revival Meeting kicks off the Pentecostal movement. It's characterized by dramatic worship service, speaking in tongues and the like. Um, I know I'll probably piss somebody off out there that's Pentecostal or whatever, but um, speaking in tongues by talking in languages no one understands has absolutely nothing to do with speaking in tongues according to the Bible. Uh, according to the Bible, and again, I'm not a religious man, but I do know the Bible quite well, when the apostles spoke in tongues, every man heard them in his own language. So I would speak like this, and you would hear me in Spanish or Greek or whatever, and everybody could stand there and understand me, like the Universal uh, Translator on Star Trek. So, yeah, just got to say that. Anyway, and Mahatma Gandhi organizes his first nonviolent protest. He's in South Africa right now, and his passive resistance philosophy is in its infancy. The one I'm going to read for you guys is the big one, the Frisco Quake. It's two hours before dawn in San Francisco. There's a deep rumble like a heavy truck going by, except in 1906, there's no heavy trucks. 20 seconds later, the ground sways, and less than a minute, the world comes apart. It's a 7.8 magnitude earthquake. There's a sudden change in ground elevation. Then everything moves over 20 feet. Well, almost everything. The water lines from the reservoir are gone. Gone. Gas lines rupture. Oil lamps tip over. The fire alarm is dead. But the fire department already knows. Over 50 fires erupt simultaneously. There are only 40 fire stations. All hell is breaking loose. Two days later, the fire chief is dead and they're still fighting the fire. The hydrant on the 20th uh, and church is working. They paint it gold later on. After three days, the fire is contained. 50, 500 city blocks have been wiped out. To avoid panic, the government lies about the number of dead, but we are well past panic. 3,000 to 6,000 are dead. Maybe 300,000 are homeless, but frankly, a 10 is preferred these days. Thank you very much. The rubble is pushed into a bay, trading an artificial peninsula. The insurance payoffs will hit investment hard, and worldwide economic downturn will ensue. My take by Alex Shrugged. During the 1989 World Series, a 6.9 magnitude earthquake hit the city. Since the 1906 peninsula was never engineered, the most spectacular earthquake damage occurred there. The entire first floor of a building sank below ground due to liquefaction of the soil. It occurs when the groundwater pumps to the surface due to vibration caused by an earthquake or traffic of heavy earth-moving equipment. Heavy is defined as heavier than a D6, which is about 18 tons. In Irvine, California, I've seen a caterpillar scraper buried up to its axles in the mud it created with the vibration of its own passing. Question, how can I survive an earthquake? Don't let stuff fall on your head. All the rest is commentary. Briefly, do not run outside. Pieces of building are falling off. Inside your house, stand in a doorway or crawl under a desk. Chain bookcases to the wall studs. Give it room to rock a little, otherwise the chain will pull out of the wall. Store your supplies to survive a heavy pounding. If your phone works, call your Aunt Lucy in Santa Fe. Local lines get jammed, but out-of-state lines are usually open. If everyone knows to call Aunt Lucy, you can pass messages to the rest of your family. Don't call home. The line is dead. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a take on this one because I want to have my take on one of the sorriest excuses for the use of human skin uh, on planet Earth, Adolf Eichmann. Who, who did you know make that quote, I will leap into my grave laughing because the feeling that I have five million beings on my conscience is for me extraordinary satisfaction. Because I wanted to 
tell you how that worked out. So he made that statement, and uh, when he made that statement, it was toward the end of the war. I believe it was 1945. But right after he made that statement about how he would gladly leap into his grave because, you know, he had killed all these people and it was exhilarating for him, he didn't leap into his grave. He, he hauled ass like a coward. He went to Austria. He lived there until 1950 and eventually moved to Argentina using false papers. Information was collected by Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, and confirmed Eichmann's location in 1960. And then a team of Mossad and Shin Bet agents captured Eichmann and brought him to Israel to stand trial on 15 criminal charges, including war crimes, crimes against humanity, and crimes against the Jewish people. During the trial, Eichmann did not deny the veracity of the Holocaust or his role in organizing it, but claimed he was simply following orders in a totalitarian system. Found guilty on many of the charges, he was sentenced to death by hanging and executed on 1 June 1962. So, I don't know how happy he was to leap into his grave, but sooner or later somebody shoved him into it, and that's one of those people that, you know, usually when somebody dies, even somebody maybe that, you know, was a bad person, you have some remorse. Not so much for Mr. Eichmann, so, bye-bye. Uh, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Um, I want to start out with just the question that spawned this episode. It says, hey, Jack, I'd like to start by saying thank you for everything you do. It helped me greatly in my venture towards homesteading. My question is, what are some great venison recipes or methods to cook it? Details, I'm coming from a family with no hunters, and it's my first year hunting. Within two hours of my first morning, I had a deer on the ground. Good job there, man. I had it professionally butchered, as I don't possess those skills yet. Any help in making amazing meals with this meat would be great, as I'm having a blast hunting. I really want to enjoy the food it's providing. These are the cuts of meat I received back. Steaks, stew meat, ground meat, sausage, chops, roasts, backstraps, tenderloins. Thank you, Bobby. Well, Bobby, first of all, congratulations in uh, having success on your first time out hunting deer. Don't get addicted to that. Um, the, uh, the, the, the first year that I ever hunted archery, I shot a deer the second day I was in a tree with a bow, which is uh, a little challenging. And uh, I was pretty cocky about it. The next year, uh, I shot a buck with a bow. I also shot it the second to the last day of the season. I hunted every single day. And that winter, I shot another deer in firearm season, which I shot also on the last day of the season. And in those two seasons, I saw one, exactly one deer while hunting in areas with a lot of deer. So it doesn't always work out that way. But good for you, man. I hope it keeps you excited and going back for more. And I hope you're in a place where you're not limited out at one deer because one deer just ain't enough, as you're about to feel like after we get done with today's show. So, so that was the question that spawned this. And I thought, you know, with steak, stew meat, ground meat, and all, all that stuff, I, I can't do that in a 10-minute or less answer for a college show. And I thought I would do it for today. But, again, I want to I point out today that when I start talking, talking about cooking a venison steak, I'm going to tell you basically how to cook a steak. And I think this is one of the, the big things that people fail to understand. It's red meat. So you don't really cook it any differently, except that it's easier to, to mess it up. And the main reason it's easier to mess it up, I want you to think about it like brewing a beer. Um, 
if I if I brought you over to my house and I said I just made some beer and you said well what do you what do you have and I said something like I have a a really nice British brown ale you you like oh that's cool that's kind of like a microbrew type of thing and or you you know or a, an American pale ale or an IPA or something like that and, and and it would get a lot more play from you if you're a beer drinker anyway then let's say I said I made a beer that's really similar to Coors Light or Uh, Miller High Life or Coors Regular beer, you know, or you know, something like that. Because, well, it's kind of plain. It doesn't have a lot of depth of flavor and things like that. But as a home brewer, it's actually a lot harder to make a light or standard American lager than it is to make these other beers that people are so enamored with today. Because there's no place to hide, right? If you have an imperfection in a British brown ale, you've got these multiple hops going on, you got this, this this chocolate malt, maybe a little bit of caramel malt, you, you've got this fruity ale yeast, so there's a lot of places for small imperfections to hide, but if we're just doing a light hopped, light beer that's done at lager yeast where you don't really have a lot of depth of flavor and difference, if there's a flaw in there, you, you see it. It's a little bit different with deer, it's not that there's not complexity in there, but what there is is a lot less fat. And fat is forgiving when it comes to cooking meat. Remember that. Fat is forgiving. And, and what I mean by that is it's a little bit harder to dry out a piece of meat when it's marbled nicely with fat. And it's a little bit easier to dry it out when it's very, very lean. And that's the big difference with venison. It's extremely lean. Even if you go, like we used to shoot deer in a place called Tumbling Run. And I don't know if the whole place was called Tumbling Run or if we just called it that because the Tumbling Run Dairy was there. But there was a lot of public land, and, and land that was private, but nobody really cared if you hunted out at Tumbling Run. And Tumbling Run was like a mixture of woods and farms, huge cornfields. And these deer would munch, browse, and, you know, berries and all this this high-carbohydrate sugar along with mastules of acorn, plus they would go out at night into the cornfields. And these were the biggest, fattest deer I ever saw in, in Pennsylvania. I mean, when you skinned a deer, there'd be a, a freaking inch and a half or more of tallow on the back legs in the back uh, there, and there's quite a bit of a good kind of floating fat. But even those deer with all that fat, well, they don't have as intermuscular fat. The fat floats on the outside. You might have a little bit of intramuscular fat where you've got two layers of muscle or some fat between them, but you don't have that marbled fat in the meat like you do with a really good piece of, let's say, black Angus. And because of that, even if, and, and, and tallow is like a hard fat that we can do some things with that we won't talk about today because it's out of the scope of today's show. But it's not something you want a big hunk of on the side of your steak like you do with a piece of beef fat. It's candle waxy. It's not good stuff. So you don't have that. So that means when we, we're cooking deer meat, we sometimes want to add a bit of fat here and there. But again, we can only add that fat to the outside. We add fat to the outside of a piece of meat a little bit of oil or a little bit of grease or something like that. What we're actually doing if we're going to grill that is we're helping transfer the heat into the meat. We're not actually keeping the meat moist other than the cooking technique because the fat can't get in the meat. If I, if you, if I, if I were to take and rub margarine on your forearm, a little bit of it might seep into your skin, but an hour later, unless you wipe it off, you're going to have a big slab of margarine on your forearm. It's not going to go in there, and it'll go in skin better than it's going to go into things like muscle. 
So we can only do so much by adding fat. So what that means is we've got two ways to cook venison in general. There's some other things that we'll talk about today, but in general, we're either going to go fast and hot or low, slow, and moist. We are very unlikely to cook a piece of venison in a smoker the way that we would cook something like, let's say, a brisket. Too low, too slow, too long, too dry. Doesn't have the fat for it. That's why we like briskets for that, because they have a huge fat cap. Put the fat cat up, self-base, and it's got fat running everywhere through it. Deer doesn't work like that. It's not that you can't smoke deer meat, it's that it's a little bit more challenging. You're usually making jerky or sausage or something like that. With sausage, we can incorporate the fat because we grind the meat and we push it together either in patty or link form. So that's how we can break that rule a little bit. So keep that in mind today. Before I get into how to cook, I want to talk a little bit about what Bobby said he had his professionally done. And I want to talk about self-processes versus professional processing and some of the things that, that you might deal with there. When you self-process, you have complete flexibility. And one of the things that does for you, so Bobby said he has chops and backstrap, for instance. Well, that's interesting because that's really, to most deer hunters that self-process, you got backstraps. And a backstrap runs from like where the neck is above the shoulder blade all the way down to what's called the rump roast. So that's all the way along the ribs plus, so you got your ribs and that's going to be what they're calling chops. And I'll talk about that in a second. And then it runs past where the ribs end all the way down to you hit the pelvis. And when you hit the pelvis there, the backbone kind of lineup and everything changes But from the point of where the neck meets the, the, the shoulder all the way to there, you can, when you have a deer hanging up and it's, it's, you know, it's skinned, you can take that out as one giant long strip. And you might want to do that. And when I start talking about cooking, maybe you'll understand. Well, once you do that, you can cut it into chops. So think of the reason they call it chops, you chop, right? And, But what most processors are going to do is they're going to cut the ribs off and from that neck point to where the ribs end, maybe they're going to cut that one vertebrae or two vertebrae thick or they're going to cut the backbone in half and cut them like little pork chops, you know, one side each. So you're going to have a butterfly two side or a single side chop or they're going to bone it just like I said and they're going to cut it into pieces, and then they're going to leave the piece, because it is a different cut. It's The muscle is used a little bit differently. They're going to take the piece from where the ribs are down to the rump, and they're going to leave it in one piece. They're going to call that a backstrap, and they're going to cut the, the piece from the ribs up to the neck into little steak-looking medallions and call it chops. That's because you feel better because you got two things instead of one. Here's the secret. On a deer... You couldn't tell the difference between one and the other unless there was a bone in it so you could see it. It tastes the same, even though it is the fact that the stuff over the ribs is used a little bit more than the stuff between the ribs and the backbone, and that's a little more tender. You really can't tell. So if you self-process, you can take that whole strip off, and then you can sit there and look at it. It's about three foot long. And you can say, well, 
I can cut it into two one-foot pieces, or three one-foot pieces, or two foot-and-a-half pieces, or I can cut it up into little medallions. Let's say an inch, inch-and-a-half thick. Thicker is better, with deer meat especially. Thicker is better. But why would you cut it up into medallions? Let's say you said, I'm just going to cut it in half, right where the butcher would, right about, you know, and that's about where you get a half and a half, the back strap to the chop side. And you're going to, now you're going to cut up in a medallion. Why? Unless you're going to cook it right now, you want it that way. Why wouldn't you just wrap it up in your freezer paper or whatever, put it in your freezer? When you take it out to cook it, if you want to cook it as a whole little mini roast or a little, you know, loin, you can do that. If you'd like to cook it now as smaller chops or breakfast steaks, some people call them, well, you, there's all you're going to do is cut it in as many slices as you want. So that's just one of the reasons I think that self-processing is better if, if you have the skill set. And the other thing to tell your butcher is you like thick cuts. Because a lot of what I'm going to tell you today is kind of hard to do with thinner cuts, though there is some cool things you can do with some thin cuts as well. So let's start out with steaks. Now, on a, a, a cow, your sirloin is one of your main steaks. And that comes from a part of the kind of the pelvis area. Part of that's going to be your round and your rump, but there's also that forward piece of it that is a sirloin. I've seen very few butchers cut that piece off and cut it into steaks, though I'm sure it's done. And you can just kind of look up sirloin steak, you know, online and see a diagram of where it comes from. Most of the time that whole piece is either usually as a whole bone-in rump, take it as a roast, or they take a, a, a bandsaw and cut it in half, and you have two half roasts, or it's boned and it's made into stew meat, or it's made into uh, ground meat. It's w one of those things that's done with it. I think it makes a fine roast, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But generally, that's not what you're getting when you get deer steak. You don't usually hear, you know, get deer steak that way. The other place that you get steaks from a cow is going to be what they call your backstraps or your, your chops from a deer, which they're not going to call steak. So what generally, when you're looking at a deer steak, Is a deer steak off a deer if it's done by a butcher or even done by self-processing? It's usually your back leg. It's usually your back leg from the, the knee up to where the hip socket goes into the pelvis. It makes a nice kind of oval-shaped steak. And they can be done a couple ways. One, your butcher will cut it to the thickness that they decide to process that at, and then they'll cut the bone with a bone saw or a bandsaw. Right? If they're actually using a bandsaw, they probably just get the meat really cold, and they just cut the meat and the bone in one shot. There's some places, I'm not going to get deep into today, with chronic, chronic wasting disease, where people are really leery about anything that exposes bone marrow, stuff like that. I'll leave it to you based on your geography and your warnings, what you want to do about that. Or they'll bone it as a single big leg with just the bone, the femur out of it, and they put it together and they chill it. And then you cut it into to full steaks, or you cut it in half so you have a point side and a round side, and you cut it off of that. The reason I even take the time to explain it to you so you know what you're looking at, or if you're processing yourself, what you're going to get to make a steak like that out of, and what muscle group you're working with. So if you think about that, compared to a cow, that muscle is what we'd call round, right, from, from a cow. It, it, it's a... 
it's a, a much tougher piece of meat in general than a cow because that back leg gets used a lot more than let's say even the sirloin in a in a, a cow, which again is kind of that pelvis area, or the loins, which would be you know your porterhouse, your New York strips, your things like that, uh, your 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 tenderloin, all of these things end up being you know your ribeyes, etc. Coming off a place in a deer, we're calling them chops and backstrap. So we have a little bit tougher piece of meat for a deer. The good news is it's nowhere near as tough as a round of a cow. So we can cook it like it's a sirloin. That's how we need to think. It's not going to have the buttery tenderness of a ribeye. It's going to have even a little bit more texture to it than something like a New York strip. But it's kind of in that range, too. So we need to think about that when we're cooking it. And the easiest, one other place you might get steaks from, I've seen some people do this, and actually you would think it would be a tougher piece of meat, but it's a pretty good piece of meat. The front shoulder, you've got multiple cuts on a deer. You've got the part with the shoulder blade. And that's either usually done as a roast or most likely boned off and ground. It's it's not the best piece of meat. And then you got your lower shoulder, which would be like your bicep and tricep area. Not, you, know, you look at your arm, nice little round section. That actually makes pretty good little round steaks. And you can cook those the way I'm going to talk about too. But those would be better marinated or tenderized in some way because they are used. It's a very heavily used muscle group. So how would I do that back steak off of a deer? Well, assuming it's not in a big roast, it's just a steak. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to want it to be about three-quarters of an inch to an inch and a quarter thick. right? I don't want it to be you know, half-inch, quarter-inch. I want a thick, substantial piece of meat to do this with. I'm going to brush it with a little bit of, of like peanut oil. Again, something to convey the heat. I'm going to put salt and pepper on it and a little bit of garlic powder. I'm going to turn my grill up good and hot, and I'm going to throw it on there once the grill gets good and hot. I'm going to sear it on one side. I'm going to sear it on the other side. And I'm going to cook it. And if you go to the blog today, the survivalpodcast.com, you'll see a picture of what a properly cooked deer steak looks like, in my opinion. It's probably underdone for many people. But it's beautifully seared on the outside. It's pink around the rim, and the center is red. It's a warm red center. And you can, I want you to look at that picture because you can cook it until the center looks like the, the border between the bright red and the pink, and it's still going to be good. You can go more well done, let's say, you can cook further along than I'm saying right now. But if you cook that thing till it's, it's, it's a single uniform gray color all the way through, it is going to taste like tough, chalky liver. So don't do it. Don't cook it past medium rare. And if you are going to cook it past medium rare, don't cook it past medium. Do not take it to medium well. And here's what happens. People who are happy to eat meat, at least with a pink center, so as long as you leave a pink center, you're going to be good, say, well, it's a deer. I have to cook it longer to make it safe. Okay, so you're going to take a piece of beef that is from a cow, that stood up to its armpits and its own manure and the manure of 40,000 other cows for six weeks at a CAFO while it was waiting to be processed, and you'll, you'll cook that medium, medium rare, whatever, 
but you're going to overcook a deer because you don't think it's safe, and the animal lived in the wild and ate the most natural of all diets on the planet. It doesn't make any sense, so don't do it. If you wanted to cook a steak like that indoors, use the broiler. A broiler is an upside-down grill. So get your broiler hot, cook it under, turn it once, and done. And you might, you know, here's the thing. You might want to cook some beefsteak about the same thickness, because you can go buy more of that, and you have a limited amount of venison. And you might want to start trying to cook your steaks this way, because it's about the same amount of time. And what you want to do is get yourself a good instant read thermometer. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you for the one I recommend. And it's the same temperatures you cook beef to that'll give you the results you're looking for. And you have to understand that you're going to remove it below the target temperature. If you want to cook rare, you're going to cook 130 to 135 degrees. And when you take that off the grill and let it sit, that temperature in that meat's going to come up to about 140. If you want medium rare, which is about perfect, most people will eat it. It doesn't look underdone. It's pink. It's not bloody at all. It's not red. You're going to cook to 140 degrees. And when you take that off of the broiler or the grill and, and set it on a, a like a wooden cutting board is probably best, it's going to come up to about 145. If you're going to cook to medium, you're going to cook to about 150 to 155, and it's going to come up to 155 to 160. If you cook higher than that, you don't deserve venison steak. Please give it to somebody who won't ruin it. Because well done is about 165 degrees, and it's not right. Don't be afraid to have a little bit of pink in your meat. And I'm telling you, just that little bit of pink will save the day. Every time I meet someone who says, well, I tried deer meat and I didn't like it, this is the this is how the conversation goes. What did it taste like? It was kind of livery and, and chalky tasting and dry. Okay, well, you ate poorly cooked meat. It's not you don't like deer meat. You ate a, a piece of steak by someone that didn't know how to cook it. Now, how else would I do a venison steak? I probably wouldn't. I'm going to grill it or I'm going to broil it if it's a steak. Because that's what I would do with a steak. And if you had a similar cut of lamb, you know, they never call it a lamb steak, but you could take the back leg, same cut out of a lamb that you do with a deer, and you could cook it like that. It'd come out fantastic. But that's how you do your steaks. Don't make it comp salt, pepper, garlic, a little bit of oil first to transfer the heat, hot heat, sear, cook, you know, depending on your liking, to between about 135 and 150 degrees internal temperature and let it finish off and let it actually start, let it come up, finish off and cool down. Give it about a 10 minute rest before you cut into it. And it'll change. I mean, like I said, this show's not just for people doing deer meat. That's how you cook a steak. Let's talk about stew meat. So stew meat on a deer is generally whatever was left over that they didn't feel like throwing in their grinder. Okay? So if you've ever butchered a deer, you know that the deer will often have a lot of what's called silver sheen, which are layers and membranes on, on the outside of the muscle and in between layers of the muscle. And some have much thicker and more difficult pieces of silver sheen to deal with than others, uh, like that upper shoulder. We'll have that. So a lot of times they'll trim it good but not perfectly, and then they'll call it stew meat because that way they'll have to trim it perfectly because no, no butcher 
wants to put that silver sheen in their grinder because what happens is that screw at the bottom of the grinder wraps around there and eventually you have to stop the grinder and pull the screw out and unwrap it and start it all over again. It slows things down. Another place that stew meat comes from is the neck. A lot of times they'll take the neck and if they don't decide to grind it, they'll cut it up into cubes or they'll cut up the parts of the neck that are really pure meat as, as stew meat because it looks good. And the stuff that has more of like the sinews and stuff in it like that, they'll throw in the grinder. The neck stew meat is actually pretty tender. Deer neck is a pretty good cut of meat. Uh, you can do some things with it just by, you know, sauteing it, cutting it into thin strips and using it as you would beef for a stir fry, things like that. But if you have stew meat, the best thing to make out of it would be stew. So how do we make deer stew? The same way we make any stew. But what are we going to make sure that we do with it? We're going to cook it low, slow, and moist, which is pretty easy if we're making a stew. But here's what low and slow means when you're stewing meat. It does not mean rapidly bubbling sides or across the whole top of your stew pot. It means barely simmering. I'm going to say it one more time. It means barely simmering. Stew with venison actually is a really good opportunity to bring in a second meat. And kind of the meat that works really well with it, and when you're done cooking, it'll be hard to even tell which one's which, is some lamb. So if you get some lamb stewing meat, let's say a pound, to about two pounds of venison stewing meat, you got three pounds of meat. That's a pretty thick, hearty stew. Or you can cut it down to like a pound of each. But somewhere in that range. That brings that fatty lamb in there to help us. If we don't have that, we're going to use something like organic lard when we, we braise our meat or actually fry our meat and brown it in a skillet. So what we're going to do, we're going to take our meat for stewing, whether it's just venison or with a little bit of lamb. Uh, you could use some fatty beef too. And we're going to sprinkle it with salt and pepper and garlic. And we're going to get... I like to use a cast iron Dutch oven for this. And we're going to put some uh, bacon grease, whether we, we have the lamb or not, some bacon grease or some lard in the bottom. And we're going to take some white flour, even though I'm not big on flour, because we're not going to use that much of it. And we're going to just gently coat our stew meat, and we're going to brown it in that those drippings. And once it's browned, I mean cooked, I mean browned, we're going to use tongs and we're going to take it back out. As long as we have enough um, drippings in there, still we're going to go ahead and go forward with it. If we don't, we're going to add a little bit more grease. We're going to take one big white onion or yellow onion, but it's not a red onion, chopped up coarsely, and we're going to throw it in there, and we're going to, on medium heat, we're going to cook that onion till it's cooked down to translucent. Then we're going to throw about three or four cloves of chopped garlic. You don't have to chop it real fine because it's going to cook a long time. And once the onions are pretty much done, we're going to saute that garlic for about a minute, just enough to start to caramelize it. We don't want to put it in with the onions because it's going to scorch. It's got a lot more sugar. Uh, the way the sugar reacts and actually is different than the onions, and it'll burn on us if we put it in too early. So once we've got that done, we're going to add the meat back in. And we're going to cover the meat with stock. If you've self-processed, maybe you've roasted your bones and you have deer stock. Great. If not, we're going to use beef stock or we're going to make up our own by using a product called Better Than Bullion Beef. And they have an organic. 
And that's a great way if you don't want to keep, you know, big jugs of stock around. Um, but either way, we're going to cover it with stock and we're going to bring it to a slow simmer. And we're going to simmer it until the meat is almost tender. If we add the other ingredients before the meat is almost tender, we're going to cook the shit out of the other ingredients and they're not going to be very good. In fact, we're going to cook it probably for about 45 minutes to an hour. It's not even going to be almost tender. It would be done enough to eat, but it's still going to be kind of springy. At that point, we're going to add about, depending on how much you want to make, but a good handful of coarse-cut celery and a good handful of coarse-cut potato. And we're going to add chopped, roughly chopped parsley, And we're going to add a can of tomatoes, chopped, uh, like, like um, what do you call roasted tomatoes, like cubed. And we're going to stir that in. And we're going to simmer that until the meat is tender to the fork. That when you touch that meat, it's like, it's like a nicely done pot roast. Okay? Once that's done, we're going to take some flour. We're going to put it in a cup. We're going to add some water out of, you know, just, just tap water. And we're going to mix it up. We're going to make a thin paste, and then we're going to start adding that and stirring that slowly into our stew until we thicken it to our likeness. We're going to add some more fresh parsley at that point, and we're just going to just, just gently cook that parsley in, and then we're going to dine. And that's going to be fantastic. And guess what? Lamb or beef, same thing. Okay, Ground meat. Um, chili, and most people have a chili recipe. So I'm just going to say you can make whatever you make with ground hamburger meat with ground deer meat. And I've done chili before in a couple different shows, so I'm not going to give my chili recipe, but it's no big secret. I use mostly chili powder, paprika, garlic, cumin, a little bit of oregano, salt, and pepper. Right? I mean, it's, it's it, it, everybody does this, right? Um, but let's talk about what if you wanted to make a deer burger, a grilled deer burger. Okay. Remember what I said about deer meat. It's very lean, and ground deer meat is extremely lean. So one of the things that we can do is we can go to the store, and we can get some ground pork. And you want to use about a third pork to your deer meat. So if you had two pounds of deer meat, you use two-thirds of a pound of ground pork. The problem is a lot of ground pork isn't that fatty. It's fattier than beef generally, but remember we're cutting it at a two to, you know, two one third to two thirds ratio in favor of the deer meat, so that we don't lose the flavor of the deer meat. One of the things you may be able to do is go find a really fatty cut of pork. When I make sausage, I do this, uh, like a Boston butt, which actually comes from the pig's shoulder. It's got a lot of fat in it, and you may be able to have your your grocer or your meat uh, your meat cutter grind that for you, or you can buy that. Bring it home, debone it if it's not boneless, cut it up in cubes, stick it in your freezer until it's almost frozen, and then put it through your own grinder at home. If you do that, you'll get a much better grind. Now, mix those together. And the way you know that you're done mixing it, when you first start, the pork will kind of stick to your hands and all, the deer meat won't, it'll start to incorporate together. But you'll get to a point when you're mixing these two meats together, that the fat from the, the combination of the two will start to emulsify a little bit, and it'll almost like, like a skin on your fingers. 
Like you'd be able to stop and take you know three fingers and grab another finger about the base and pull and it'll be like a skin on there. That's when you've got a good mix. You've gone to like a sausage level of mix there. For flavoring, salt and pepper, and if you want to, garlic. But a little bit of salt and pepper. Not even that much, because it's a burger. We can put salt on it. We can put pepper on it. We're going to make it into a nice, thin patty, because it is going to puff up a little bit. We're going to put a little dimple in the top. That's going to help it not puff up too much. And we're going to cook it to our liking. Now, since there's pork in it, Most people are like, oh, I gotta cook it at 170 million degrees. Modern pork is perfectly safe from a standpoint of trichinosis. It really is. They don't feed pigs in captivity, the kind of stuff that causes this problem anymore. They just don't. Okay? So we can cook it, but I would cook it to a medium to medium well. Slightly pink in the center. You know, 140, 145 degrees with your instant thermometer. Hot temperature, nice suit on the outside, and do it up like you do your hamburgers. Absolutely fantastic. Here's another option. I have a friend up in Arkansas that is big on deer hunting. And with where he lives, and he has access to this place where you can shoot just tons of deer uh, with a special permit in the uh, Hot Springs Village. Uh, his thing is he'd go to Costco and buy like a whole ribeye. For his ribeye steaks. Because you get it for less if you buy it whole. The dog's upset now because the wife's home. But you, you know, you buy the whole, the boneless ribeyes. He would buy them at Costco. They're like 150, 180 bucks, something like that because they're big. But they're untrimmed, just like a big giant rib roast, basically, like a, like a, a boneless rib roast. And he cut his own steaks out of them. Well, they have a huge fat cap. So he'd take his knife. And he just lay off a big hunk of those fat caps because it's more than you need for your steak. And he'd cut it up, and he'd put, put it in a freezer bag. He'd weigh them out to about one pound each, throw them in a freezer bag, throw them in the deep freezer. Deer season comes along. He would cut his deer with one point, uh, 1.5 pounds, one and a half pounds of pure beef fat to um, seven, was eight and a half pounds of deer meat to make a 10-pound yield you have 15% fat ground meat. Just like you went to the store and bought 85.15. And basically, he saw it as free because he was already paying less for his steak. So if you have any large cuts of beef that you routinely are trimming fat from, you can just put that fat away and save it for deer season and do the same thing that I said, making your burgers. Now, I actually think this makes a much better deer burger than the pork mixture. Pork is for sausage. When I'm making a hamburger, a deer burger, I want it to taste like deer, and pork is that lighter meat and all. So this is a really good way to consider going. I've never done it, but there seems to be to me no reason you couldn't do it with suet, uh, which is the fat around the beef cavity. So that might be another option as well. Um, sausage. So this is really out there because... Well, what kind of sausage? Is it jalapeno deer sausage? Quack black pepper deer sausage? Is it smoked? Is it plain? I'm going to assume it's just a plain deer sausage. Um, it's probably cut with 20 to 30 percent pork. If, uh, if the guy knows what he's doing, because you don't make deer sausage without cutting with some fat. It's just going to be too dry. And the easiest thing to do, honestly, is throw it on the grill and cook it till it's cooked through. So that when you, when you cut it open, there's no pink. 
sausage is designed to cook like that. You can leave a little bit of pink, but if you give it time to rest, if it's a little pink when you first pull it, it'll cook through. And so you cook it to 150, 155 degrees. And keep turning it, get a nice char on the outside, and try it like that. Make a little bit of it, see if you like it like that. There's a lot of other things you can do. You can do like a sausage and peppers thing. Uh, you can do like a sausage spaghetti, you know, spaghetti sauce and sausage. Uh, if you're going to do anything like that, where you like cut the sausage up into small pieces, cook the sausage whole, or if it's in a big ring, cut into like, you know, six, eight inch lengths. And then when you serve it, after it's been cooked in the, the tomato sauce or whatever, cut it up in small pieces, you know, as you serve it or let your, 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 your guest or yourself cut it as you eat your spaghetti or whatever. Don't cut it in small pieces when you cook it because it's going to drop the fat a lot faster that way. So you're going to hold the fat in. All right. Um, if it's not smoked and you'd like to smoke it, please consider smoking it. It's a fantastic thing to do. I use a Bradley smoker. I'll put a link in the show notes to the smoker that I have. Um, so you can smoke it, and that's pretty much just smoke it until it's done to your liking. Um, and you can decide whether you want to smoke it as a hot smoke, where you're going to be able to just eat it, or a cold smoke where then you're still going to have to cook it. But, but that's something that even if somebody else processed it for you, you can do. Your chops. Okay, again, what are your chops? Your chops are generally... The strip of meat that comes along the backbone from where the neck joins the shoulders down to where the ribs end. And they'll either be with or without bone. Most butchers today, to save time, I'm going to assume, and with the concerns of chronic wasting disease again, they're going to bone it, and the difference between that and the back strap is going to be cut into medallions. If you're cutting your own, or if you're having your butcher do it for you, I would suggest you ask them to just leave those cuts of meat whole. And I'll talk about a couple different ways you can you can cook them right now. So one way, we can grill it bacon wrapped with jalapenos. And the way that we're going to do that, we're going to take this applies. I'm going to just take back straps and chops, and I'm going to just combine them right now. Okay, you can do this with anything I'm going to talk about with one. You can do it the other. We're going to lay it on the on the on a cutting board. With our hand on top of it, long ways away from us, and with a sharp knife, we're going to cut it from one side to the other, kind of cut it evenly in half, like we're going to cut it all the way, but we're only going to cut it about five-eighths of the way through, just past half, and we're going to open it up like a butterfly, and we're going to take, depending on how much heat you want, we're going to take jalapenos or serranos or whatever peppers you want, and we're going to cut them into flat strips so that it's going to fold up back nicely. We don't want it all bunched up. And we're going to lay a layer of jalapenos in there. Before we do that, while we have it up, we're going to put some salt and pepper and garlic on it. And then we're going to put our peppers down. And we're going to take a few little smatterings and pieces of garlic and drop them in there too, just because that goes really nice. And we're going to fold it close. And then we're going to take a piece of bacon at one end. And we're going to wrap it, and we're going to pin it with a with a toothpick so that it's holding, and we're going to keep wrapping it. And we're going to wrap it until we run out. Then we're going to take our next piece of bacon, and we're going to overlap it about an inch and a half, and we're going to keep going until we have the whole thing wrapped in a tube of bacon. And then we're going to grill that. And we're going to grill it to a medium done, a pink to a red center. Well, that's it. 
We're going to have to turn that frequently. We're going to cook that a little bit lower temperature, give the bacon time to render. Now you want the secret to get the bacon crisp and not overcook the freaking um, backstrap or, or, or uh, your, your chop loin, whatever you want to call it. This is what you do. You take good bacon for this. would be kind of not super thin, but you don't want the super thick stuff either. You put it on the grill. Like you're going to grill bacon. Grilling bacon is easy. You just keep turning it and don't let it catch on fire. Right? Until it's done the way you want. But what we're going to do, we're going to cook it till it's still soft. But we're going to, we're going to take about a 10% shrinkage out of it. We're going to render about 10% of the fat out of it. And we're going to pull it off and we're going to let it cool because we don't want to work with hot bacon. And then we're going to wrap it. And that way the bacon is a little bit cooked already and it's going to tighten up and crisp up a lot faster. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is just take your bacon, Throw in a pot of boiling water for about two to five minutes, just looking at it. Pull it out, let it let it dry and cool, and wrap it up there. Either way, we've rendered out some of the fat. The bacon's going to cook and crisp faster. I prefer the grill to the boiling method. The boiling method is my buddy Neil's method uh, from, from England, and it does work. But grilling the bacon just long enough, just as it starts to render out, you want it to stay nice and flexible, still a little bit stretchy, but just a little bit pre-cooked. That will do it. I'll t there's rubs you can put on these things that I'll save for another day because I want to keep the simplicity going here today. So that's that's another one. A roast. There's a lot of different ways we can do a deer roast. But we're going to do what? Slow, moist. Slow and moist. If we go, because we don't have the fat, We don't want to go fast and hot because we have a bigger piece of meat. We have to move up the temperature. We want it to be tender. When we do a deer roast, we want it to either be something that we're going to slice, and it's going to be kind of like sliced roast beef, or we want to cook it to the point where it's almost like stew meat, where it's falling apart. There's, there's, there's ways we can do both of those. One of my favorite ways to do this, though, is we just take whatever... All we're going to call a roast is a big chunk of deer meat, right? And we're going to take, what do you think? Salt, pepper, and garlic. Salt, pepper, and garlic. And we're going to coat our roast with it. And we're going to take some bacon grease and something like a big, heavy-duty cast-iron Dutch oven. We're going to get it up to temperature, and we're going to brown the outside of it to develop some flavors. We'll drop in some onions and some carrots and some celery. We'll put the lid on the Dutch oven. We'll set the oven to like 250 degrees. It's as moist as you can get. Steam really can't get out of the Dutch oven. We'll set that in the oven, and we'll check on it from time to time. And when it just cuts with a fork, we're going to pull it out and eat it. Maybe we threw some potatoes in there. You know, things like that. So basically we've made a stew without the, 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 the juice. We're going to have a, a small amount of drippings in the bottom. When we put it in the oven, we might want to enhance things a little bit. A little bit of red wine would go nice in there. Not enough to cover the, the roast. We don't want to boil it. right? We basically want to steam it in a roasting environment. And uh, so, so red wine would work with that. A little bit of beef broth would work with that. There's a lot of different things that would work with that. But we're just going to treat it like a pot roast. Except we're not going to throw it in a crock pot and cover it with water, but we can put it in a crock pot. There's no problem doing exactly what I just said 
and putting it in a crock pot. It will be beneficial to get a skillet and brown it first to develop flavor. But then we can drop it in a crock pot, we can set it on low, throw potatoes, carrots, and celery in there, and we can leave it sit there all day. It's not going to dry out. It's, it's, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. It's going to come out like pot roast. So, tenderloin. All right. So a lot of people confuse the tenderloin with the backstraps. Backstraps, again, are the part along the backbone that runs from where the ribs end to where the pelvis begins. Okay? That loin there. Your, that's your ribeye on a, on a, uh, or that's not, I'm sorry, that's not your, uh, your, your, your ribeye. It's, uh, your, uh, your New York strip on a cow, right? The tenderloin is, to get to the tenderloin, you have to open the, you have to gut the deer, and you're going in through the stomach side, and it's up against the backbone on the inside versus the outside. These muscles are very seldom used. Or they are used a lot, they don't do a lot of work, I guess. They don't bear any weight. They're just a simple flexor muscle along the inside of the backbone. When you get a steak that is a, a, a porterhouse, right? You've got that backbone there and it's cut in half and you've got two sides. You've got a New York strip on one side and you've got filet mignon on the other side. That filet mignon is the tenderloin. So the tenderloin of the deer is the filet mignon of the deer. And of course, the number one way that Filet mignon is cooked in America today, and it's actually not a very bad way to do it, is we cut it into a thick steak, we wrap it around the outside with a piece of bacon, and we grill it like a steak. The problem with that for deer meat, a deer tenderloin is a very small cut of meat. It's not real big. And it doesn't make good medallions. It just doesn't. If you cut it up like that, you're going to get, first of all, like the first third on both sides that are like a long, thin piece, and then kind of a sort of thick middle piece, and it tapers really fast. There's two basic ways that I'll make these. One, if I don't want to cook outside for whatever reason, salt, pepper, and garlic on it, okay? Skillet. And in that skillet, we're going to, we're going to put in some butter. And some onions, and we're going to soften the onions in the butter, and we're not going to get too hot, okay? And we're going to add some garlic, fresh garlic, right before we add the meat, and we're going to take the whole things, a little salt and pepper on the outside of them, we're going to lay them right in the skillet, and we're going to cook them whole. And we're going to turn them until nice and brown on the outside, we're going to cook them to what? About 140 degrees, so they're a little bit pink on the inside. We're going to pull them out. We're going to let them rest. They'll come up to about 145 to 150, depending on where we brought them to. We're going to take longer to get there than normal. This one we're actually going to cook a little bit hot and still a little bit slow. Because it's a whole piece. It's sealed in. The moisture's not going anywhere. We're not going to overcook it. And then we're going to slice it and eat it. And, and generally speaking, they're small enough that one is a portion for one person. If you have a big family, you might have to have a half of one each. But in general, I could eat two of them. In, you know, in general, I could. The other way we can do this, we cook them on the grill hole, grill them like a steak, cook them to 140, 145 degrees with your instant read thermometer. You almost 
don't need to worry about even the salt and pepper. This is such a fantastic, flavorful cut of meat that all you really have to do is cook it and not overcook it, and you will be okay. But if it is not at least pink inside, you should you should go to, if you if you are a a Catholic, you should go to confession and tell the priest what you've done. And if you're if you're not a Catholic, whatever it is that you do to repent when you have sinned, you should do that. If you cook a deer tenderloin until it is cooked all the way through, it probably, if it's just happened and it doesn't go any further than that, it won't even suck. But you do for what you have done to the meat. You have sinned against the meat gods if you do this. Okay? Don't overcook it. That's this the number one thing you can do is don't overcook it. Get it a nice, browned, flavor-developed outside, pink inside, and you're good to go. It's a little tricky with a whole tenderloin, because what's going to happen is as it tapers on both sides, you are going to cook it through on the thin part, but the center needs to be pink, and that's okay. It will come out. You will not feel bad about it in any way. You'll be very happy with it. I've never cooked a tenderloin any way other than those two ways. I've never cut it into pieces. I've never made it into medallions. I don't see the purpose. I don't see the point. Okay, heart. This is one that was not on the list. It's one people generally just don't even think about a lot of times if i'm out hunting where there's a bunch of people and they're gutting deer i ask them are you taking the heart and the liver and if they say no i take it all right the heart is one of the best things on a deer to eat and preparing it is dead simple okay um i'll give you a little bit on cutting it up but basically you split it in half and you kind of know what to do as you do it you're going to cut it in thick Strips like pepper steak, think of it like that. And there'll be little tender, tendons and ventricles and things like that. Everything that doesn't look like it belongs or anything that ain't red, you know, cut it out. And, you know, cut the fat. There'll be a fat cap on the top of it. There'll be, you know, your, your, your vent, your, uh, not your ventricles, but like your aorta and, and whatever, your, your blood vessels come out the top. You remove those and cut it into strips. Okay. Salt and pepper on it. Garlic if you want that. Butter, onions, and garlic in the skillet, and cook it till it's just done. You, you're you're not going to make this rare, really. It might be a little tiny bit because it's a thinner piece and it's going to cook faster. But it goes from the most succulent thing you can eat on a deer, other than a tenderloin, to rubber pretty quickly. If you rubberize it, the only thing you really can do then, after you repent for your sin against meat is you can add water to it, and you can slowly simmer it in water until it, it tenders back up. But if you just cook it until it's done, when you can pull it out and it easily slices, and there's a tiny twinge of pink in it, just get it off the get it off the heat and just dig in. Because God is fantastic. Liver. I'm not a liver guy. Um, I kind of like quail livers dredged in flour and brown. Those were pretty good last time I tried them. Not my favorite, but decent. But I'm not a liver guy. But what I've learned as a sausage maker is liver's awesome. And it's a pretty good size cut of meat. So I'll usually take, and a liver has a lot of fat in it, even in a deer. So what I'll do is I'll cube my liver up, and I'll freeze it, and I'll mix it in with my deer meat, and it'll reduce my fat requirement for burger and sausage. And generally, I only mix the liver with the deer meat that I'm going to make into a sausage. So that's what I do with liver. What I used to do with liver, I used to cut, I used to take the liver, cut it up in a couple pieces, throw it in a pot, Boil it when it was and boil it good, and when it was done, slice it up into little pieces and feed it to the dogs. 
They were very happy about it. I've learned a hard lesson. If you feed a dog too much boiled deer liver, it has explosive diarrhea. I mean explosive on the wall diarrhea. Don't do it. Um, I would say the best thing you could do with liver if you want it for dog food is to probably cut it up into small pieces and, and, and just give it to them raw. Cut it into small pieces, put it in the packs, freeze it, take a pack out of time, mix it in with their other food and give it to them raw. It's a dog. He's supposed to eat raw stuff. A dog can eat things to kill you and be just fine. Um, that's it. That's, that's kind of what we have for the day. I hope you enjoyed it today's show. Um, I do want to reiterate a couple things. Number one, the main way that you can ruin any piece of meat is overcooking it. Now, if you're making a stew, if you're making a slow-cooked roast that's a fall-apart pot roast type of thing, um, you, you, you're going to cook it very, very long. But most other methods, you want to cook it hot and fast and be done with it, and a little bit red in the middle. And it's amazing how quick that meat goes from tender to tough if you go past that point. Oh, I want to give you another quick one. My buddy David uh, recently was kind enough to bring me some deer roast that he had made, and I think there's a couple pieces of it left, and I'm going to go have when I'm done recording. Yes, I get to eat deer meat, and you don't. You have to stay at work. Anyway, so all he did, I don't remember, he didn't say what temperature he cooked it at, but I know he certainly didn't overcook it. He took the whole back leg that we talked about making steaks out of, you know, bone and, and, and inserted garlic cloves in between all of the work. Like he didn't put any holes in it, just where all the muscle groups come together. And he roasted it in one of the roasting pans that I recommend. The big roasters, I'll put a link to those in the show notes today too. And he roasted it in there, probably, I'm going to guess, 325, 350, until it was done with probably an instant read thermometer to about 145 degrees internal. That'd take a lot longer to get there because it's a bigger, thicker piece of meat you're moving there. And it seemed like he did a dry roast with it. It didn't seem like it was done uh, with any kind of real liquid on top of it and then just sliced it real thin. It's very, very good. I would tell you, did a way that you would be able to make a deer roast in an oven or a roasting pan and come out really, really good and stay nice and moist is a browning bag. A browning bag. And and you, you, you cook that in the browning bag 325, 350 degrees until it's done. You know, you're probably looking at with a, a large roast like an hour, hour and a half, somewhere there. Again, your, th your thermometer is your friend. But browning bags are like magic. So I, I actually uh, texted... Uh, David today though because I wanted to give you a bonus here so he came to me right before Thanksgiving and he borrowed one of my roasters and he said I want to do some ducks for Thanksgiving too what do you recommend and I thought well there's ways to do duck but if you want to do a whole duck I, I want to give you a foolproof race so I, I recommended a browning bag so he said why and I said well because my grandmother would destroy meat my grandmother was a, if you think I'm harsh on people that ruin meat I grew up with a grandmother that could cook and bake like you wouldn't believe, but let her near a piece of red meat, she destroyed it. She was one of these like hyper-freaked-out people that overcooked everything. So I had, you know, a lot of times she would cook game that we brought home, and that was scary for me all the time because, you know, you, you work hard and you bring home this, you know, wonderful field-gotten goodness, and you know that if you aren't careful, she's going to... uh She's going to destroy it. And one of the things that we, we got an awful lot of back then was ducks, wood ducks and mallards in particular. And she cooked the ducks in a browning bag. 
And because ducks have quite a bit of fat, she never ruined a duck. And he said, well, how long? I said, well, I'm really not sure, but if you just want to be safe, roast them in a browning bag and then crisp them up a bit. So what he came up with is he put the whole duck in a browning bag. And I think you could do this with a, a chicken. You could do this with a duck. You could do this with any, any poultry. And you probably could do this with a piece of venison as well. Put it in a browning bag, one and a half hours at 350 degrees. Took it out of the browning bag. Sprinkled, he used some dehydrated honey, but you could use just some sugar onto the skin and put it back in at 15 minutes to crisp the skin up. And he said it came out absolutely fantastic. So there's your little bonus today, a little duck cooking as well. With that, let's go ahead and remind you guys, if you like this show and if you think you got 20 cents worth of value out of today's show, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. And while you're helping to support the show, you'll also get discounts uh, to over 60 companies on stuff that you're probably buying anyway. If you use just a few of those discounts every year, your membership will more than pay for itself. In fact, I hear from members all the time that say they make money on their MSB uh, membership. Additionally, if you are a military law enforcement Peace Corps or a first responder, like a firefighter or a uh, paramedic or an EMT, Uh, either active duty or prior service, you can email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send you a discount code to save you money on an already great product. The other way you can support us is by going to tspaz.com the next time that you're going to shop on amazon.com. That's right, tspaz.com. TSPAZ, or T-S-P-A-Z, is basically T-S-P Amazon. You'll go there, you'll see a link, you'll click, you'll get on over to Amazon, you'll do your shopping, you'll buy whatever it is. Uh, yesterday, somebody bought a book I had never heard of when I was looking at the sales reports. And when I look at your sales report, I can't see who you are, but I can see what you bought. And it was a book called Go the, to Sleep, right? Yeah, and I with the F, right? And it's like F space space K, to sleep. And uh, it's a it's a book for tired parents everywhere. So it's funny what I see people buy on T-SPAS. But for instance, when that person bought a copy of that book, it helps support the show. So no matter what you're buying, especially this holiday season, if you go to tspaz.com, you support us. Uh, and every day I also put out a review of an item from Amazon that I use in my home in general or something that's been recommended to me and I've checked it out, and I can recommend it with confidence. Today is a really cool item, and it fits in with cooking, though it's not for cooking deer meat. It is the King Cooker 12-slot leg and wing grill rack. It's a cool little grill rack, and they sell for about six bucks. And what they do is you hang your wings or your legs when you put them on the grill or bake them, And then that way they cook with the hot air all around them, but they never actually touch the grill and they hang and they cook perfectly. And again, they're only about six bucks. So let me give you a wing recipe for using this thing. So you're going to take your, your grinder, your spice grinder, which is what your Mr. Coffee grinder. And in your Mr. Coffee grinder, you're going to put about a tablespoon of the following salt, black pepper corns. Go ahead with cold corns. Garlic powder or dehydrated garlic. I prefer to use dehydrated garlic and dehydrated onions. Two tablespoons of chili powder. Two tablespoons of paprika. Okay? And one teaspoon of brown mustard seeds. And then you're going to take it, you're going to give it a whirl till it's a fine dusted powder. We're going to take our chicken wings and we're going to dust them with that. We're going to put them on this thing and we're going to cook them on the grill on a medium-low indirect heat till the wings are almost done. Then we're going to turn the heat way up 
on the non, on the indirect side and get the inside of that grill getting hot so that those that skin crisps up. And uh, they're going to be just fantastic like that. But you know me, right? I'm, I'm going to make this just a little bit better for you. Into a jar, we're going to take some jalapeno-infused olive oil and a squirt of yellow mustard. And yellow mustard is emulsifier. It's going to make the oil uh, bind with the other items. In this case, we're going to use some white wine. So we're some white wine, some uh, jalapeno-infused olive oil, and we're going to put in also, again, that little bit of mustard. We're going to put about a teaspoon of the leftover rub in that. So the same, the rub that we put on there, we're going to put some of that in there. And we're going to put about a teaspoon of honey in there. And then we're going to put as much hot sauce of whatever variety you want to bring it to whatever heat level you want. I like a hot sauce called Cholula. And I'm going to put a couple good squirts of that in there. I'm going to put that into a, a, a pint jar, like a ball jar, like a canning jar. You can use a quart, pint, whatever, but a pint's big enough. Put the lid on it. I'm going to shake the hell out of it. And it's going to all emulsify together. That mustard's going to make it emulsify. When you're done shaking it, stop there and look at it. And if it starts to separate, shake it again. And if it starts to separate again, add a little bit more mustard. That'll get that wine and that, uh, that oil to, to come together. And how much one? I don't know how much, how much do you want to make? Don't make a big deal, but equal amounts. Okay? And then what we're going to do when those wings come off the grill, we're just going to lightly brush them with this stuff. And then we're going to get some toasted sesame seeds and we're going to sprinkle them on there and let them set for a while while that, because the heat of the wings is going to go ahead and the skin's going to say crisp now. And that sauce is just going to kind of, we're going to do it with a, with like a little silicone brush. We don't want to make it real heavy. We don't want to dip them in it just a little bit. And the skin's going to be hot enough. It's going to kind of cook the sauce a little bit and it's going to get sticky and those sesame seeds are going to stick to it. And it is freaking fantastic, folks. And that's what you can do. And I said in my review of the King Cooker 12 slot leg and wing uh, rack that I would give you the recipe on the show. So there you go. One more bonus recipe in today's cooking show. And you don't even need a deer to get it done. That brings us to our song of the day. And I've kind of had a uh, just a fun show with you today and nothing really deep or, or meaningful. But if you notice lately, I've been trying to play some songs that have some deep, meaningful things to them to get you to think about your life. And today's song is song actually was a number one song in the 90s for Garth Brooks, but it's it's still one of Garth Brooks' lesser known songs. It's not something that you you know hear like "Ain't Going Down" when the sun comes up or uh, uh, "Friends in Low Places" or anything like that, uh, or even like meaningful songs like "The Dance." Right? It's called "The River," and it was released in uh, 1994, I believe, is when it was first released. And uh, it, it's it, it's pretty awesome song, and uh, I'll, I'll let you listen to the whole thing. But I wanted to give you one stanza out of it and talk to you a little bit about it because I think this is a good time to start reflecting on where you're going in life. And uh, here's the stanza: Too many times we stand aside, let the waters slip away, to what we put off till tomorrow, it has now become today. So don't you sit upon the shoreline and say you're satisfied. Choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide. 
That's the attitude you have to have. I talk about it all the time. You have a, a dash that is you in your life. And what I mean by that is someday they'll bury you in the ground and put a stone over your head and they'll have a couple of years on it. There'll be a dash or a hyphen in between those years. Or if you're cremated and scattered somewhere, they'll probably still write an obituary about you. And, you know, hopefully it'll be long enough. There won't be any newspapers left by then. And I'll put it online somewhere. But one way or another, your name someday will be listed with two dates on it and a dash in between it. And that dash is you. That's all you've got. That hyphen is you. And, and that's what this song's about, is making the most of that time. And I'll give you another kind of the opening stanza as well to kind of drive that home. You know, a dream is like a river, ever changing as it flows, and the dreamer's just a vessel that must follow where it goes. So our, our dreams are what drives us. We, we, we are, we are like the, 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 our bodies are like the boat. And the dream is like the river. And without the river, a boat's useless. I don't know how, how much you know use you get out of a boat in the middle of a desert. So it follows on, trying to learn from what's behind you and never knowing what's in store makes each day a constant battle just to stay between the shores. I will sail my vessel till the river runs dry. That's the first line in the chorus. I'll sail my vessel till the river runs dry. That means as long as I can dream, I'm going to keep driving on. The, 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 the very definition of becoming stagnant in your life is one there's nothing else to reach for, nothing else to go for. I heard from a, a very close, longtime friend, one of my oldest friends in the world today, his life is an absolute mess. And, and, and to be honest, a lot of it is his own making. I'd say the majority of it is his own making. And I was telling him, basically, you have to decide you want to pull yourself out of this hole. You have to. Because no matter what you do, no matter what you try, if you don't want to pull yourself out of this hole, you're not going to. And his response was that, you know, I feel like at this point in my life, and this is lost his second marriage, I'm running out of time. And I'm like, you know what? I can introduce you to a six-year-old kid that would beat your ass for saying that. Because that six-year-old kid has leukemia and isn't going to live to see 10. And you're in your 40s and you're probably going to live to be 90 unless you do something stupid in your life. And I know he was sad and he wanted me to make him feel better, but that's kind of how I make people feel better as I put it in perspective. And it's the truth. There's so many of us out there that are like, It's too late for me. It's too late in my life. I don't have enough time left. I hear it all the time from me. I'm in my 40s. I'm in my 50s. Yeah, well, I can introduce you to a 12-year-old that's not going to see 11. So don't bitch to me about your time. When we stop is when we stop thinking about what's next. And when we lose connection about what we've learned about what we've come through. That's when the river runs dry. We're heading into 2000. 17. Many of you that are my age, when you were kids, it sounded forever away, and now it's here. The time will keep rolling just like the river. Don't let it get away from you. Choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tides. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
know a dream is like a river Ever changing as it flows And the dreamer's just a vessel That must follow where it goes Trying to learn from what's behind you And never knowing what's in store Makes each day a constant battle Just to stay between the shores And I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Like a bird upon the wind These waters are my sky I'll never reach my destination If I never try So I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Too many times we stand aside And let the water slip away To what we put off till tomorrow Has now become today So don't you sit upon the shoreline And say you're satisfied Choose to chance the rapids And dare to dance the tide Yes, I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Like a bird upon the wind These waters are my sky I'll never reach my destination If I never try So I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry There's bound to be rough waters And I know I'll take some falls With a good Lord as my captain I can make it through them all Yes, I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Like a bird upon the wind These waters are my sky I'll never reach my destination If I never try, so I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Yes, I will sail my vessel Till the river runs dry Till the river runs dry